to the CLL Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to episode 24 of the COO Roundtable. As this is a monthly podcast, if I can do my math correctly, I believe episode 24 marks our two-year anniversary. I have been truly amazed and humbled by the quality of the guests we've had the opportunity to interview over the past two years, and today's interview is no different. Both guests today join us from Siegel, Bryant, and Hamill, an investment firm that is a quarter of a century old and manages over $22 billion of client assets. And this is one of my favorite guest pairings, to have a COO and a CEO together. Um, we have CEO Phil Hildebrandt and COO Paul Lithberg joining us to talk about the success of their firm, how the two of them play off of one another to ensure the trains are running on time as the organization is continually evolving. So welcome to the podcast, Phil and Paul. Hey, thanks. Thanks for here. Awesome. So Phil, I'm going to go to you first. I'll let you give us a little background on the firm. As you said, we're an investment firm. We uh, are 26 years old. Pleased to say that this year has been incredible for us. I mean, we started the year at 20 billion, went down to 17, and today we're about 22 and a half, which is just extraordinary. Very diverse and very diversified in terms of what we do. Very diversified in terms of the asset classes that we manage. The thing that I would tell people about what we do is that we, we focus exclusively on inefficient markets. We are looking for places where there's less information information where we can bring our disciplined fundamental approach to investing and, and really exploit those inefficiencies, you know, in a way that creates alpha for our clients. That typically what you find is that is in primarily smaller cap type stocks and fixed income and alternative. Each of those have certain things about them that make them inefficient and make them exploitable. So uh, we have about 122 employees, five offices, diverse workforce, diverse set of strategies. They like to tell people we're an overnight success after 26 years. <laughs> exactly. And then, so you've been with the firm uh, over 25 years, pretty much since the beginning. Uh, you, may not even, you may not even remember a time before SBH, but can you tell us a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. You said that correctly. It feels like there have been here my whole career. I started out, I uh, went to the University of Minnesota, got a job with Prudential Insurance and their investment, Prudential Investment Corporation, where I learned, I started out doing uh, mortgage finance and leverage buyouts. And uh, I had the opportunity to move to Chicago. Took that opportunity, ended up getting an MBA at Northwestern University and stayed with Prue for a few more years and then was looking for a new opportunity. And I got introduced to this startup called Siegel, Bryant & Hamill. This was in late 94. They had opened on October 17th of 94. And I was I joined on April 10th of 1995. So I've, I've literally worked with every employee Siegel Bryant's ever had. I've been there since the foundational days. And the evolution of our firm from was about a 10-person firm with a billion dollars under management to where we are today has been, yeah, it's been, I'm really proud of the way we've evolved. I have to say it's been 26 years is a long time, but we've built a really good firm. That's great. And then Paul, you joined the firm almost eight years ago. So if you don't mind, tell us the story of your career and then how you found yourself today as COO and you hold the CCO title as well. It's such a large and prestigious firm. So maybe just a little bit of, of background. Well, first of all, thanks, Matt, for inviting Phil and I again to, to the podcast. Uh, we appreciate the invitation to do that. My education background went to Augustana College in tiny Rock Island, Illinois, where I received an accounting and a business undergrad. I have a master's degree uh, from the University of Illinois campus here in Chicago with a focus in marketing from there. I do have a CPA in Illinois, although I'm not registered anymore. I guess I'm considered really a recovering accountant per se. So I started my career at Allstate Insurance Company as an accountant. 
work my way through the various departments uh, within the accounting department. And really, I guess it was there that it really focused on two pieces, one data and the importance of data. And, and I'm not just talking any data, I'm talking about accurate data. We all know the saying that you could be data rich and information poor. And there were many times where I thought that was the case when I was at Allstate. And I guess it made it somewhat my, my life's mission to make sure that we can focus on making sure that we have quality data. So that was the other piece of it was just really the control structure not only just the importance, but the necessity of controls around data and the processes that relate to them. So who can do what, when they can do it, who needs to sign off, what are the permissible inputs and the values, et cetera. So that's where I, I think I kind of honed some of those skills. About a little after 10 years into my career at Allstate, I had the opportunity to help the investment department build out a business continuity plan. And the investment department at that time was about 400 people strong. We managed about $100 billion in assets ranging from any fixed income type of security you can think of with the you know, same thing on the equity side. And we had a fairly sizable derivative portfolio as well. So for about a year, I spent time really from the ground up working with the asset class people, understanding how their processes work. I made my way back into the operations group to see how the trade information flowed through, how the reconciliation processes work through, and then spent some time on the technology side, seeing how their support functions work for the asset classes. So it was really a, a great opportunity and a great way for me to learn the investment process is starting really from the ground up. After the project was implemented, I found a home in the operations world at Allstate Investment Management Company, as their advisors called, and worked my way around the various support functions there before I took over a rather small compliance function that they had there at the time. And my job there was really to build out the compliance role there, really focusing on all aspects and making sure we are in compliance with the Advisors Act. So again, as you might imagine, my focus at that point were controls, data, and really forensic monitoring around the processes. So after about 15 years in the investment department, I decided I was ready for another challenge in my career. And I took an assistant CCO spot up with Doherty Financial Group uh, located in Minneapolis. Doherty at the time was providing the compliance, the HR, the legal and financial support for two affiliates, uh, affiliated investment advisors. One was located uh, right outside of Minneapolis in Edina, and the other was located here in Chicago. And I guess you're all guessing that the one in Chicago is Siegel, Bryant, and Hamill. So without going into too many more details, I guess at this point, SBH decided that they were going to bring in-house uh, those support functions, which meant that Phil needed to hire a CCO, a CFO, an HR director, um, and so forth. So Phil and I had a, a few conversations, and I'm glad to say that I accepted the role of not only the CCO, but also took on the chief operations person as well here. And I couldn't be happier with that decision. And I, can, I guess I can give you an example. Yesterday, I had an applicant ask me, what keeps me motivated to wake up every morning and to come energized to work, so to speak? And really, without hesitation, I told him it's really the challenge challenges uh, that each day brings for me. No two days are alike, no two weeks are alike. And that's really what I thrive on. And I guess what motivates me is just not the routine pieces that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's something new that Phil will throw my way, whether it's a, maybe he's looking at a new M&A deal, or he's uh, just looking at some new revenue sources or different ways of doing things here. So in a way, I feel like a problem solver looking for ways of which I can add value to the company because I never want to be viewed 
as an impediment to our growth. And I think that's one of the areas that Phil and I had, we're certainly on the same page with that and making sure that we're moving forward and that we're finding ways to make things work and, you know, not just saying no to everything. You talk about the accurate data. I'll tell you, it's, it's, we're recording this on December 3rd. We're uh, PFI. We are going back and looking at the top blog posts we've written throughout the year. And one of the top five, the title of it was written by Jay Veal on our team, why every RIA needs a data analyst. So, and it was one of the top five clicked on articles that we wrote all year. So it is absolutely needed. <laughs> Not a surprise. Yes, exactly. So Phil, as I said in my opening remarks, this podcast is all about professional management and how it can unlock so much growth for organizations. Can you talk to us about how you and Paul work together and how he's added scalability, not just to the organization, but to you specifically as the CEO. Yeah, I mean, he sort of touched on the fact of the professional management aspect of things. I mean, when we were growing the firm, we're using an outsourced, you know, we had a partner up in, at Doherty Financial. We used some of their fraction, kind of a fractional of their internal people who were extremely talented, but we had a third of their attention. And so as we got bigger, it was just pretty clear that, it, you know, and I think this is what a lot of RIAs don't quite grasp. If you want to grow beyond, uh, you know, a small uh, firm, you really do have to make the investment in the infrastructure and the professional management aspect of it. And that started with me. We'd run the organization with an operating committee of four people. I tell everybody, I preach sermons about this. Operating committees are fine when things are good. They're ineffective when things are challenging. And, and we learned that and because we were kind of going sideways for a few years and we decided to create the position of CEO. And I ended up that role and I'm here I am, what, 15, 16 years later. But the infrastructure that it takes as you scale up, it becomes more and more complex. And, you know, even Paul was talking about the challenges, the day-to-day -day challenges. Every day is different. And you have to have people who are flexible, talented, confident, all those things to be able to deal with the challenges that you get faced. Because the firms that ultimately succeed are the ones that are the best at processing those challenges and ultimately making good decisions you know, based on the challenges that come out. So we've got a great team. We've got a great leadership team. Paul, as you described, my CFO is excellent. Our HR director is excellent. You know, we're very fortunate. That's great. And then Paul, from your perspective, how do you and Phil leverage one another to make the uh, the elusive one plus one equal three? <laughs> great question. And I guess if I were to sum it up in one word, I would say trust. I think Phil trusts me to make the right calls. You know, he's he's been known to say that a third of the time he'll agree with me a third of the time he'll be neutral and a third of the time he'll disagree with me. Now, I hope he doesn't disagree with me that much. It seems like a big number, but um, I, I think we're-, we're Two thirds of the time, I trust his judgment, so you know. <laughs> okay, that's still a good batting average, I guess. Yeah. Right? I think Phil and I are on the same page with most things. Now we've worked together for, for eight years. Um, sometimes I still have a hard time reading him and I, I tell the story about when I interviewed at Doherty, I interviewed with probably five people. Um, and one of those individuals was with Phil and he was the only one I didn't feel real good about. I wasn't really sure. I couldn't really read him. But afterwards, when he and I talked, he was, no, I thought it went well. So, you know, it's, it's me trying to figure out where, where his needs are uh, and where his head's going. And again, if, if there's things I think that are higher risk, pose higher risk for the firm, I'll be certainly to reach out to Bill or, or Ralph to get their input before I would move forward with anything. You know, Matt, the, the thing I was going to say is my philosophy is autonomy and accountability. And I think that's how you grow because if you, if, if, if you have to micromanage everything, you're never going to be successful. So you hire talented people, you empower them to do their job, you trust them to do their best and you hold them accountable. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean just when there's mistakes. It means 
you know, when they succeed as well. I mean, and it's, it's having that ability to act, you know, without second thought. And, and I think that's a huge thing we try to get with all of our professionals, not just Paul. Yeah, I was going to echo that, that I think that that's not just for me, but I think that's the way we treat all of our staff. You know, Phil is, is huge on empowering the staff, uh, but with that comes along accountability too. So we'll, we'll give them the rope, uh, but we're going to make sure that, you know, we do hold them accountable, um, you know, what, whatever the decision may have held. Um, the last thing I just wanted to quickly mention is that I think being able to handle the day-to-day -day operations has given Phil the time to, for him to focus really on the strategic matters of the firm. Um, again, whether it's M&A related or new strategies or maybe even potential revenue streams. So uh, I think it's freed him up that he doesn't necessarily have to worry about what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. He knows that he's got people that can cover that for him, again, which will really free him up to do other things, which he's certainly more capable of doing. Yeah, I started to get uncomfortable under 10,000 feet. So that's why you got to have quality operations people that you could trust because that's, I'm, I'm, I'm far better above 10,000 than I am below. Yeah. And, you know, we made the joke, oh, geez, you guys, dis you know, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I don't think it's a disagreement one third of the time. It's what I'm hearing is, and it's important for our listeners to hear, two thirds of the time, there's no back and forth email, right? It, it's yeah. run with it, Paul. One third of the time, it's not quote a disagreement. You're not yeah, arguing about things, but right. it may require one or two emails and then it and then Paul moves forward for execution. And that's really the leverage there. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, basically what I said to him is like, look, in that third, let's talk about it because that, that, those are the, that's the third that needs discussion because that's probably the more challenging of the decisions. And, we, mm -hmm. you know, that's where the collaboration, I think, comes in because we have a very open and direct environment. And, you know, I think the ability to um, ask questions, to challenge each other and do it in a professional, respectful way is, is really critical. And, and that's really what that, that other third is. Yeah. No, I love that. Agreed. And he hasn't fired me yet, so that's good. Eight years, there's still time. <laughs> I said it's December 3rd, so. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so let's talk about uh, how you both develop the culture at SBH. Um, Phil, as the CEO, I'm sure you have a lot to say about culture, so I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it, cultures, this, this year in particular, I think has been um, one where it shines a light pretty brightly on your culture, because this is the kind of environment where if your culture is not strong, it could really fracture pretty quickly. But the thing I, the thing about culture to me is it is a living, breathing organism and, and you can't fabricate it. So, you know, I think back to the beginning days of Siegel Bryant and, you know, I give Ralph Siegel a lot of credit for being you know, the cultural rudder of really early days, just by the way, he treats everybody with respect. He's a very sincere person. He's, he's a wonderful human being, and he conveys that to the people around him. And I think that kind of set the tone. And I think you reinforce culture through your hiring decision. What type of people are you hiring? Are, are they consistent with that culture? Are they not consistent with that culture? We've created a set of values now, which provides a framework where we can, you know, very overtly look at somebody and say, do they, do they live out these values that we've established for ourselves? But I'll also tell you, culture has got to evolve. So the culture that worked when we were 20 people, you know, in the early days, doesn't work when you start to grow. And, and I think that that transition period is probably the most critical when it comes to culture, because I mean, I, I can speak more specifically, but, you know, we had an HR director who, who came from the old 
culture, who liked that culture and who, you know, actively supported that old culture sort of behind my back, which, you know, that, that family sort of culture, right? Well, that doesn't work when you get to be bigger because there's a certain amount of infrastructure that you have to build to hold the, the weight of the organization, right? And, and I think the culture has to evolve just like that to the point where, you know, you still have to treat people fairly, you still have to include people, you have to divert, diverse, all those things. But, you know, our environment is really fast paced. So, you know, the culture of independence, the culture that Paul is talking about, about autonomy, those are cultural things that you build over time. And, and they, they are set through example and they're reinforced through repetition. And, and so, you know, those are the things I think that define our culture, which, and, and you take a pandemic year like this, where we've been remote, it's been amazing how well our culture has done. In fact, it's given me, strangely enough, more access to employees rather than less, because I can do it through this remote technology that we have now. It's been fantastic. And, you know, there's been a lot of social issues this year that have come up and that we've dealt with openly and in a raw fashion that'll, you know, make us better going forward. Yep. You hear a lot of people say the only constant is change, right? Everybody's got to be ready for, for, for change. And for a firm like yours, it's growing as fast as you are. I mean, that definitely has to be ingrained in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. So Paul, what can you tell us about culture and how do you as the COO, how do you help shape the culture at the firm? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, to what Phil said, it was, it almost felt like a mic drop moment. They talk about culture being, uh, you know, really set at the top and, Phil does an excellent job with that. And I think his empowering nature of the employees, I think that comes through loud and clear to all the employees. You know, Phil has, has been known to say from time to time about, we try to have an entrepreneurial type of uh, thought process here. And we, we want all the employees to feel like they own their processes and it's their own business. So to me, that fosters them and encourages them to you know, create a very a good work ethic, a hard work ethic encourages them to continually look for process improvements along the way. And ultimately, when, when the company wins, they win as well. And that's really what we, we try to encourage within the employee base. Phil had mentioned earlier just really about his open door policy. I think that that's another perfect vehicle to help create the, uh, the trust that we have with all of our employees. And Phil's a very visible CEO, although we're not in our, our offices, he's talk, he's, he has a number of ways in which he still keeps in touch with the, you know, the 120 employees and not just with maybe those that report up through him. And, and the employees, they, they really love that. They love the exposure to Phil. They feel like they can, they can talk about any particular issues that they may have. Um, which again, I think it just fosters the, uh, the drive from the employees and keeps them motivated as well, which is good. If I were to, if I were to flip that with my CCO hat on, I would say it's, it's the same story. Um, you know, Phil sets the tone at the top with that, and he's got a, a fairly low tolerance um, for mistakes and for not following the processes that we laid out. Um, and that's very helpful to me as the CCO, knowing that um, he always has my back when we have, uh, you know, things that might pop up from time to time. So um, that's a that's a very good thing from a compliance officer to say that, you know, he, he doesn't feel like, um, you know, he needs to do an end around every time something happens. So, um, yeah. You know, I would say, Matt, it's been interesting this year culturally because the, the amount of trust that it takes for, to to believe that people are going to work, you know, hard while no one's looking. Right. And, and that's the thing where we've had 
the, the our operational efficiency this year has been amazing. And, and it's a truly a tribute to the people that we work with because they're not, there's not, you know, oversight. They're doing their job. And the thing about our organization is while we're fairly large, we're not deep. And so, you know, each position carries a very important role. And when that role is not being fulfilled, it slows the machine down. And so, you know, I think that is what we take great pride in this year. I'm, I'm blown away by how much our employees have done. I mean, we, we've tried to do creative things. Today's a perfect example. Um, you know, I started this concept called SBHU, um, which is SBHU University. So it, what we did today was we talked about, so we've set up 10 sessions that all employees can click into voluntarily to learn about different parts of our business. So today was learning about the statement I made early on that we invest in inefficient markets. Pretty good chance that our CSAs don't know exactly what that means. And so we spent an hour today where I interviewed Ralph Siegel, just like you're doing with us you know, on that aspect of our business. And, you know, just as a way, it just creates a, a cohesiveness because the employees are think that, wait a minute, these guys stopped and took time to try and make me smart, right? And, and I think that that really does matter to people. I think they really do appreciate that. Absolutely. When you're investing in them, they just feel that much better and, and are going to work that much harder for you. Yeah. I, I was just going to add on, Matt, something quick to what Phil said when you talk about um, the employee base. And Phil has been a, um, he, he's the, the loudest cheerleader for the staff, too. So when you talk about public acknowledgement of efforts, um, you know, I think sometimes the staff feels like they don't get recognized appropriately. But um, Phil has been very good with that and making sure that, you know, he acknowledges the efforts of the staff um, and that goes a that goes a long way to I think just helping out the culture as well. The whole <laughs> I, the whole basis of this podcast was the chip on my shoulder as a as a past COO. Uh, I've seen so many. I've talked to so many people that well at the end of you know at the end of the year they look at the COO and they say well how many clients did you bring in? Well you're not very valuable around here. Uh, so that that was the whole the whole basis of find of 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 starting this podcast was to give COOs some recognition that they so, so deeply needed. But Phil, I can tell this is not, that's not a problem for you. You do a great job um, keeping everybody uh, motivated and, and let them know how important they are to the organization. It's easy for me to get credit, um, but it's more powerful to give credit. So, you know, I think that that what Paul's talking about is something I overtly do try to do. Um, and, and I, th I think people, I think people do appreciate that, you know, but I'll also call them out. I mean, they know that there's, there's another side to that coin. Sure. Right. And, and it's like the, the, you know, um, it takes a little bit of getting used to, I swear, Paul was, you know, you, you pump the truth serum into him. Um, it takes a little bit of getting used to, uh, the, the direct way that I approach people because it can be very off putting. It can be very unsettling. And, and, you know, but what I tell people is that the good news is you, you'll never have to wonder what I'm thinking, mm -hmm. right? Because that's where ambiguity creeps in. That's where uncertainty creeps in. Just trust. If, if, if I'm not telling you there's a problem, just trust it not, right? And, and that's, and then we move faster further because, you know, the, the rumor mill is the worst possible. You talk about culture. The, the, the thing that drives me the most crazy is rumors. And, and, you know, and the funny part about the remote environment People don't have time or the capacity to create rumors, right? It's fabulous. So, you know, it's like when, when you when you take that away from people and you just, when they trust that if there's something they should know that they're going to know it, then they stop wasting time wondering that. 
And, and I think that that's a subtle thing that goes unappreciated, I think. Uh, and, and it's really, really powerful. That's great. So Paul, I'm gonna to go to you on this one uh, first. Um, global pandemic aside, running a business today is very difficult. How do you manage the complexities of the business? Well, that's easy, great staff. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as, as Phil said, you know, despite having 120 plus employees, I, I still think that we're a pretty lean organization and we just can't afford uh, in our fast paced industry to have, you know, the weak link in the chain, so to speak. So we really, um, we expect a lot from our employees and we think that we reward them uh, commensurate with that. Um, we try to keep our employees motivated and fully engaged because I think that's where uh, you'll see peak performance out of your employees too. There's there's nothing worse, and we've all been there. That if if you don't like what you're doing, uh, that's not a good thing for anybody. It's not a good thing for the employee, and it's not a good thing for the firm. So we we try to make sure that we continually uh, keep the staff motivated. Um, we try to change jobs around a little bit, different assignments, just to keep things uh, you know ever changing for them. Um, it has been a bit challenging at times uh, since we've been, uh, you know, working from home the last number of months here since we can't meet in person. But uh, I think we've become proficient now in the use of Teams meetings and uh, Zoom meetings just to make sure that we do keep the face-to-face -face interactions going and the discussions going. Because I still think that that's key. And, you know, Phil had alluded to it earlier that, you know, he really tries to uh, emphasize that as well. Um, and then I think it's just to recognize the efforts, like I talked about earlier, of the staff. I think that that's critical, and I think that means a lot to them uh, when they know that they're, uh, what they're doing benefits the firm as a whole. Um, and to me, when you're providing the coaching and the training that's necessary, to me, that's what leadership is about, is, is being uh, involved with them and providing all the tools that they need to succeed. Yeah, when you, Paul just passed along I mean, I, I had cited, I think, in my, my board meeting, my management committee, you know, just how how really impressive our operations and, and IT people had been through this period. And and he was like, do you mind if I forward that part of your, you know, your, your CEO report to the team? And I was like, no, that's totally fine. And I mean, I think that they saw that that wasn't coming from anything other than just, you know, something I was saying. So that, I think that helps. That's great. And Phil, I wanted to ask you, you, you talked about... Um always staying above 10,000 feet. So what key performance indicators, I get this question a lot from people, what, what KPIs do you rely on to give you an accurate picture of the health of the business when you're trying to stay, stay up high? Yeah, I mean, you know, by staying up high, I mean, it's basically keeping a strategic focus on everything we do. I mean, I, I, I've got people that can handle the day-to-day. -day. And, as, and as Paul said, I, I'll, I'll look at a lot of different things. I, I try to create interesting new ways to think about things and a lot of them are bad. Uh, and, and so you, you got to sift through those, but I, you know, for me, the stability of our staff is probably the single largest indicator uh, that, that I'm out curious about. And, and what's interesting is that when I became CEO, uh, Ralph and I, Ralph Siegel and I had a, you know, heart to heart about the fact that our stability in that case was actually a negative um, because we weren't holding people accountable. And so we had, we had a bunch of people and he was proud of these people that worked for us so many years. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not accomplishing what we need them to accomplish. So some turnover is good. Some turnover is healthy. Um, you know, I don't want to see a lot of trips to HR. I mean, we've been very fortunate, you know, in terms of people feeling like they were treated fairly. 
so, you know, that the personnel part of it to me is, is a really key metric. Compensation is always, you know, this time of year, um, making sure people feel like they're valued, but, but also merit-based because if you, if you don't create a merit-based compensation structure, that means certain people are being undercompensated because they are not being fully appreciated and because somebody else is being overappreciated. So it, it, it's, a, it's a combination, but a lot of it's personnel. Um, one of the things, one of my key metrics is AUM per employee. Um, I, I look at the total assets that we have per employee, which right now comes out to about 183 million. Um, you know, when, we, when Steve O'Brien started, it was about 120 million. Um, you know, 10 employees, 1.2 billion. And, you know, today it's uh, 122 employees and about 22 and a half billion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that to me, it shows efficiency growth, productivity growth, um, and, and shows, you know, creates operating leverage in our business, which, you know, is, is something that is vital to our ability to grow profitably, not just grow. So that's probably the biggest one that I pay attention to. That's great. I like that one. So Paul, we've, as we've discussed, SBH is a very large organization. You're much larger than many of the firms we've had on the podcast. Um, can you talk to us about how you manage change within the organization? Uh, this is something every firm struggles with, but when you have the number of employees that SBH has and multiple office locations, it can be even more difficult. So how do you tackle change management? Yeah, a good, good question. Um, to me, I guess, I, again, I would characterize it by engagement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've worked for, for large firms and sometimes you, you feel like you're, uh, you know, a decision or a process change is just being forced down your throat here. Um, and that never feels good for anybody. And, and oftentimes it doesn't end well. So um, I think what I try to encourage is just to make sure that we have the right parties at the table um, to talk about the potential change that may be coming uh, down the pike here and gain different insights and perspectives. Um, I still feel like we're a, a small firm, um, even though we're 120 you know, people uh, spread out a, across a number of offices here, but I still feel, um, to me, it, it feels like we're a close-knit group of, of people um, you know, we interact daily uh, with people throughout our different offices, so it doesn't matter if, if you're in Chicago or Denver or St. Louis, um, you know, I still feel that, that our communication lines are open, and if I ever need uh, input from a portfolio manager or an analyst or a trader, um, they're only a, a phone call away or a team meeting uh, away from me at that point in time, so I think it's, it's good to gain the insights of many before you start moving forward there. And I think that you're only doomed for defeat if, if you don't engage people like that and you start making decisions upon what you think might happen or what you thought did happen. Um, and again, that, that just doesn't end well. So um, I guess that's really kind of my take on it, is just making sure we're, we're involving uh, the right people in the decision-making process. Perfect. Yeah, you know, the thing I'd, I'd add to that, which is interesting, is because we've, we've, I've put people through a lot of change in the last 10 years, and the ability to deal with change is almost like a muscle. It, it takes some repetition for people to get used to it, and then they realize that it'll be okay. And, and you know, that, so the, the initial shock, I think the early changes that we made in the structure, in the, you know, whether it be operational compliance, all of those things, I think were more jarring because people just, you know, that, that change was new. I think as we've gone through the last 10 years, people, adapt, they, they adapt so much more quickly now because they realize that it's going to be okay. I mean that, you know, not every decision is right. 
Not every decision will work. And if it doesn't, we'll fix it. But, you know, that they, they just roll with the punches better now. And um, that that is a huge uh, component of being able to grow. Yeah, I, I think just just involving the staff in the decision making process. And you're right, Phil, that, you know, there's going to be a time where we're going to need to make a call one way or the other. And some people are going to like it and some people won't. But I think, again, as long as people have had a voice in the process, I think they're, you know, it'll go much smoother. Yeah. We, we come into organizations a lot, you know, as, as that third party outside and we ask, you know, why do you do things this way? And you, we always, many times, I shouldn't say always, but many times you get the blank stare. I, I we just, we've always done it this way. I'm assuming you guys don't have that problem oh too my much. God, you just touched on, you, you just touched on one of my hot buttons, which yeah. is, you know, inertia is never a good reason for anything. And, and it's like, so just because we did it that way last week has nothing to do with that. If that's the way we should be doing it next week. Right. You have to constantly challenge what you're doing. You have to constantly be willing to listen and, and, and learn and, and fix it. I mean, it's just, you know, the, that, 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 oh, the way that drives me crazy. <laughs> we hear it a lot, a lot. I don't know why we do it this way. I don't know why the performance reports look this way, or I don't know why this happens, but we just, we've, it was like that when I got here <laughs> and yeah. I was too scared to, to change it. Well, and that, that's, Matt, that's a great point because when, when we hire new staff on board, that's one of the things we look for. We, we want fresh ideas. We want fresh thoughts. We want to hear what they think about it because the way we're doing something, you're right, maybe a little bit archaic. And, you know, that was great 40 years ago, but yeah. it doesn't work anymore like that. Yeah. No, this is great. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. As I said at the outset, I love taking a break from our our, our normal format of having two, inter, uh, two COOs from two different firms speak. Uh, this is great having a CEO and COO to hear how the two of you work together to make the firm tick. So thank you, Phil and Paul, so much for being here today. You were both were fantastic. Yeah, happy holidays. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Talk thank to you later. You. Yeah. And this is our December episode. So I guess it's going to be uh, 2021 by the time we talk to our listeners next. So I want to take a moment to just wish everyone a happy new year. 2020 has definitely been a wild ride. I think I think our family is going to spend New Year's Eve. <laughs> I think we're going to be staging the house trying to get all of the 2020 mojo out of here. <laughs> it's been an interesting one to say the least. So for everyone listening, please stay safe and really celebrate the fact that we made it through this roller coaster of a year. Let's hope uh, 2021 is a bit quieter and a little less wacky. We'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you.